Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, this is David Pluff. Welcome to Campaign HQ. Well, we finally have results in from Iowa, delayed. Talk about uh, what a mess that was. But first, I want to talk about the results we have. I'm recording this when we've got about two-thirds of the caucus results in. And uh, we now know that uh, Pete Buttigieg has a lead in the pledge delegates, which is the only number that used to be released. Now, there's also two other numbers that have been released, as many of you have gotten familiar with. The Just the raw vote of who uh, shows up at caucuses, and then the first alignment, uh, which then leads to uh, some of the math around delegates. So I think, um, first of all, very good night for both Pete Buttigieg and Bernie Sanders. I think they're both going to claim that they are winners, and, and uh, Pete Buttigieg already uh, did so. Uh, in his first speech uh, in New Hampshire on Tuesday night. Uh, my assessment of this going forward is, one, for the candidates that did really well, so Pete Buttigieg uh, has so much riding on Iowa and really needs, like Barack Obama had in 2008, uh, that night where he can speak to the country and reach people in New Hampshire, Nevada, and South Carolina and beyond, both to raise money and recruit volunteers, but also to move his numbers. And so he did not get the full measure of that. He'll still get some benefit out of winning Iowa, because everyone will be talking about it between now and New Hampshire um, if that lead holds up on delegates, but he's not going to get the full bounce. I think Bernie Sanders also um, you know, missed an opportunity uh, to probably fully declare uh, his satisfaction with the results. And so while he's, I think, built more easily to go deep into the calendar with money and organization and obviously the support he had last time, um, you know, also probably did not have uh, quite that moment of speaking with the numbers on the screen and, and everybody seeing um, how well he did. Um, Elizabeth Warren, you know, uh, looks like she's going to come in third, uh, a, a strong performance, leapfrogging Vice President Biden and Amy Klobuchar. And so I think, uh, you know, she had a strong performance. It uh, looks like she was evenly distributed throughout the state. So that shows both some appeal and, and, and organizational strength across the state in every county. But I think the challenge for her going forward is to win this. And I think we have to always focus on that. This is about, if you're in these campaigns, it's about winning the nomination. It's not about having a good night or doing well. Um, she's going to have to find a way, I think, to finish ahead of Bernie Sanders, um, probably in New Hampshire. And if not that, um, certainly deeper in the calendar. So I think she's still got some hurdles. As, as going back to Mayor Pete, uh, very good night for him in terms of showing strength across all demographic groups and geographic groups. But he's got, I think, an excellent showing in New Hampshire to then gain the kind of velocity and attention he'll need uh, to survive Nevada and South Carolina uh, and have an opportunity to have a real chance in, in March. I think Bernie Sanders, you know, can probably afford you know, not to win all uh, of the first four. But if he does, uh, I think he's probably going to be uh, the clear front runner for the nomination. I think Vice President Biden clearly had a disappointing night. Probably for him, uh, the mess in terms of the results reporting was useful because much easier to give a speech just saying, hey, the results aren't in. I got some delegates. It went pretty well. I'll see you in New Hampshire. Uh, then speaking with the reality of a fourth place finish 
you know, blaring uh, on TVs and, and telephones uh, and, and mobile devices all across the, the country. So, uh, but, you know, his reckoning may be coming. He's got to find a way, I think, uh, to perform well enough in New Hampshire, Nevada, to give him the strength to hold on to his lead in South Carolina. Um, and so I think um, those in the Biden camp, I think, thought South Carolina, if they did really well in the first three states, could be, if not seal the deal, kind of be their trampoline into into March. I think now it's it may end up being a firewall if they can hold on. I think Amy Klobuchar had a good night, but coming in fifth, it's, it's hard to see absent a, a big surprise in New Hampshire, which maybe there will be how there's real longevity in her campaign. But she also, I think, showed showed strength in pockets of Iowa. So I think, you know, because of the results being delayed, I don't think you had the winning effect you normally see. Every It was almost like everybody got, got a participation trophy less on Monday night and, and got to go on. But I, I do think folks are going to chew on the results and uh, out of Iowa will have some effect. But now I think New Hampshire grows in importance, always very important. But um, this will probably be the time where I think some candidacies end and, and maybe some other candidacies uh, are advantaged. Um, and and then, of course, you have Mike Bloomberg looming out there. We, we heard that he doubled his already robust television buy all across the country uh, in the March states. So clearly he sees what happened in Iowa as an opening. And again, I've always believed for Bloomberg uh, to really be viable because, again, getting 10 or 15 percent uh, doesn't get you many delegates, much less the nomination. Um, you know, to be viable, he's going to be having to get 35, 40, 42 percent in some of these states in Marches. He really needs both Biden and Mayor Pete, I think, to stumble so severely that he is faced off either one-on-one in, uh, with Sanders or uh, for all intents and purposes. Um, you know, that's assuming that Warren doesn't surprise New Hampshire. So I think a lot of them have stuff riding on New Hampshire, a uh, pretty important uh, state next week for all of them. I think Sanders clearly would like to, to win New Hampshire as he did comfortably last time to give him momentum heading into Nevada and South Carolina. I think Mayor Pete needs to do well, probably one or two in New Hampshire, to have a credible, I think, chance to move on. I think Warren also needs to find a way to either win uh, or to be in the top two. Um, and then, you know, Biden's clearly looking um, to, to at least be in the top three in New Hampshire. Uh, if he goes 4-4 four, four, Iowa New Hampshire, that's like the worst case scenario. It doesn't mean he can't recover, given some of his strengths demographically later in the calendar. But I think it should set off serious alarm bells. And then Amy Klobuchar is clearly going to be hoping uh, for uh, a miracle. You know, we'll see what happens if Andrew Yang potentially has more support uh, in New Hampshire than he did in Iowa. Hard to see how he breaks into the top tier. Uh, and then Tom Steyer, polling anyway, suggests he's doing better in Nevada and South Carolina. Uh, it'll be interesting to see kind of being an after note in Iowa, New Hampshire, uh, if that affects his real numbers or not. Um, so that also bears watching. So, um, you know, obviously, I think there's a lot of discussion about the results snafu and what it means for caucuses going forward. There was already a lot of question about whether Iowa should be first, should we have caucuses, because, you know, not everybody can participate at one time during the day. And, um, you know, turnout is lower in, in caucuses uh, for that reason uh, than in primaries. And we saw in Iowa there were vote counting issues in 2012 in the Republican caucus. Um, there was in 2016 in the Democratic side and now again. So, you know, my suspicion is caucuses, uh, generally, the Iowa caucus specifically was probably living on borrowed time. So I'd be incredibly surprised whether it's in 2024, if that would mean we hadn't defeated Trump and uh, because we haven't, uh, we wouldn't have an incumbent president uh, or in 2028. But whenever we, we get around to meaningfully changing the rules, uh, I'd be surprised if they're not uh, fundamentally different. 
a lot of interesting ideas out there. My old friend Dan Pfeiffer suggested perhaps um, the states that should go first or the ones that were closest in the previous presidential election, places where you really want to build organization. Other people have, have talked about rotating, you know, four first states, whether those are the first four we have now or not. I think you'll see almost certainly um, a move to get rid of caucuses in the Democratic nominating fight. So uh, I hope we don't move to a national primary. I still think there is some value to a sequential process where you have some states uh, that precede the rest of the calendar, because otherwise then it just turns into um, a surely really an advertising game and people flying airport to airport. I think there is some value to having to build organization and, and have voters really poke and prod you. But I think as someone who's worked in Iowa a lot and and obviously Barack Obama benefited from the Iowa caucuses. I have a romantic attachment to him, but I, I think it's probably uh, long past time now, uh, particularly given what happened this time, um, for um, these results. And I think there's a lot of pressure on the DNC because Nevada has caucuses. Um, there's a lot fewer caucuses than there were uh, in previous years. So a bunch of states have moved from caucus to primary, Colorado, for instance, but there are still other caucuses. So I think the DNC's, you know, in these things, you kind of have to plan for the worst. So in this case, there was an app that didn't uh, work as designed. You still had a lot of precinct caucus um, leaders who wanted to call in, which they've always done. There clearly wasn't enough phone support there. Uh, you had new data requirements, um, new sets of data that folks were being asked to produce that clearly I don't think had been planned for uh, properly. So you kind of have to plan for worst-case scenarios so that that if technology fails or phone lines go down, uh, you know, you're prepared because obviously it, it, it does cause people to question um, these processes and, and, and can harm, if not erode, faith in, in the process. So uh, anyway, I think there's a lot to learn from this, but I certainly would be in favor of some pretty significant and fundamental change in this process uh, going forward. So speaking of the process going forward, I'm really excited about our guest today, Steve Schmidt. Uh, many of you have gotten to know Steve through his appearances on MSNBC. He was an adversary of mine back in 2008. He led John McCain's campaign uh, when I led Barack Obama's campaign. I've gotten to know Steve subsequently through the years, uh, and he's someone um, who has been one of the more prominent never-Trumpers in the Republican Party, uh, went so far as to leave the Republican Party. Uh, so I want to talk to Steve about our race, which he's watching carefully, but he's uh, knows New Hampshire exceedingly well, so get his thoughts on, on the New Hampshire primary. Uh, which is looming. And then also talk to him about the general election, just both his general observations about where Trump is strong, what Democrats should be concerned about, where there may be some optimism, his view of the field. And then also he started along with some other you know, Republican operatives, Rick Wilson and, and John Weaver, among some others, a really exciting organization called the Lincoln Project, uh, which is already running ads in some Senate races against Republicans, some really tough ads challenging their fealty to Trump, and they intend to get involved pretty heavily in the presidential campaign. So I'm eager to learn more about that uh, and what Steve has in store. So I think you'll enjoy this conversation with Steve Schmidt. Steve Schmidt, my former adversary, now friend and former uh, Delaware blue hand like myself, it's great to be with you. It's great to be with you, David. So Steve and I are here in New York City. We're recording this on Tuesday. We still don't know any results from Iowa. I don't want to spend much time on Iowa, but you and I spent some time together at NBC last night. I'm just curious what your assessment of and what this might mean to the race, both primary and general. I mean, what a disaster. It's just, <laughs> it's, the, it's obviously the end of the Iowa caucuses. Uh, that will be no more. But I think we're at this moment in time that 
if you share the belief I think that we share about the danger of Trump and Trumpism, I think we're heading into an election that's the most consequential since 1864. Arguably 1940 could be up there also, but, but it's an extremely consequential election. And so we have the president coming into the State of the Union tonight. Uh, he just hit 49% in the Gallup poll. Uh, it's the highest number he's ever hit. As you know, presidential re-election numbers are usually within a point of approval. Uh, so that number gets him re-elected. Uh, he walks into the Congress tonight acquitted, vindicated in his mind, powerful, really a colossus on the American political stage. And so the alarms are going off in my head yeah. after it wasn't the Russians, it wasn't a conspiracy, all the insanity online. The candidate and the party, you know, frankly, are going to have to get it together at a, at a level that they're not at in order to beat this guy in November. And so I got I to chill down my spine yeah. from all of this. I couldn't agree with you more. So let's talk about New Hampshire, which presumably if things go as they do historically, we'll actually get results on time. Uh, you have a lot of experience in New Hampshire. You, uh, you know, helped lead John McCain to a comeback uh, in New Hampshire in, in 2008, giving him great advice. I'd like to talk about New Hampshire a bit, because now normally, of course, we head into New Hampshire with the Iowa results affecting that. Somebody or two people have momentum, other people have lost it. That'll be cloudier. But New Hampshire has a history of upsets, breaking late. Um, you know, John McCain won a massive victory there in 2000 against George W. Bush. We lost uh, in a surprising upset to Hillary Clinton in 08. John McCain really secured the nomination there in 08. So talk to me a little bit about how you see this week unfolding in New Hampshire. Well, I, I think the bounce that you would see these candidates have coming out of Iowa, where you see a winnowing of the field, I think all of that is over. I just think it's obliterated. I, I think <laughs> that at five o'clock, if you have any grouping, any cluster of candidates that are close, they're just going to dispute the results. You'd have four people basically claiming they won. So New Hampshire is going to be the state where we see the first winner, so to speak, that's determined. And if we look back four years ago, we saw that decisive victory by Bernie Sanders. And I remember sitting on set at NBC and watching the crowd behind Bernie Sanders. And, and that crowd is literally monolithically white. Uh, it's indistinguishable from the crowd that you would see by appearance at a Republican national convention. And that's not what the Democratic mm -hmm. Party looks like. And so the next race, as it heads to Nevada and then to South Carolina, uh, these contests, I think, assume outsized importance, particularly as we give consideration of the possibility of a Biden or Sanders choice. And of course, with Michael Bloomberg uh, looming out there as well. Yeah. What's your assessment of Bloomberg? I mean, I think we see him moving up rapidly in national polls, but of course, getting 12% on Super Tuesday means no delegates. Right. He's got to find a way to get into, you know, at least beyond 15, but ultimately probably into the 30s and low 40s. But what's your assessment of that right now? I, I think when you look at this race, there are four currents in this Democratic primary. There's a progressive current, obviously. I think there's a desire amongst voters for something new, someone younger, I think there's an identity politics current that shapes the race but hasn't produced an ascendant candidate. Uh, I think it's heavily influenced by the Me Too movement, by Black Lives Matter. Uh, it shaped the race. 
And then there's an electability current. Who is the candidate that can beat Donald Trump? And so as the race narrows, and let's say Bernie Sanders is ascendant, I think there's a very real question around whether Bernie Sanders can beat Donald Trump. Donald Trump in that Gallup poll we mentioned again has a 63% approval level on the economy. And Bernie Sanders is running as an out-and-out socialist talking about economic revolution. I think it's an incompatible message with the reality of the country, particularly when you have those numbers around the economy. So I think there's going to be, as this race deepens a little bit, a vigorous debate about electability that's grounded in reality, that we have to beat Donald Trump, uh, that Donald Trump has to go. Trumpism has to be repudiated. And one of the things that is never talked about in the context of the politics, but of course you'll know well, is Donald Trump goes into this race with the most outsized cash on hand advantage in the history of presidential politics. It's simply staggering. And the Obama campaign weren't exactly paupers heading into the reelection. It's a, it's a staggering number. And the other issue is, is that the Republicans, uh, the Trump campaign, has an enormous, maybe three election cycles ahead of where the Democrats are on the technology basis. And the person who can solve that problem for the Democratic Party is Michael Bloomberg. And I think that when you look at Bloomberg, um, this is somebody who is one of the most competent leaders of government anywhere in the world over the last 20 years. He has been I think with the exception of President Obama passing health care reform, there's nobody who can claim more progressive victories for issues than Michael Bloomberg. And he's somebody who equalizes the fight on day one. I think his brand is competence. And when you look at the debacle in Iowa last night, I I do think it will put to the surface a, a debate and a discussion about competence because that was a disaster, right, that, that unfolded. And if the party can't manage that, then I think there's a lot of reason to be deeply, deeply worried. Now, and, and I think Conway that's good, and I think tweeted, that's good, and I think that's good right? for Bloomberg. You know, Kellyanne Conway tweeted today that, uh, you know, if you can't run a caucus, you can't run a country. So we know where they're going. I want to come back to the primary for a minute, but on, on Bernie Sanders, you, as you often did, had a very quotable line yesterday which is you believe that the sociopath beats the socialist every day in three days on the first Tuesday in November, I think is what you said. So is there a scenario you could see? Because I do think um, Sanders has some electoral strengths potentially. He's been consistent. Uh, He's got a very strong populist economic message. Maybe he can bring new people into the process. But under what scenario could you see Sanders maybe beating Trump? Or do you think from an electoral college standpoint, the race is over if he's our nominee? I I think the race is over Mm -hmm. if he's the if he's the nominee. Mm-hmm. Um, there's just, there's no tradition in the country for socialism. Uh, I mean, you can go back uh, historically to the 1934 California governor's race with Upton Sinclair running as a socialist on the ballot and how concerned FDR was, uh, understanding that uh, a rise of socialism inside the Democratic Party would obliterate his capacity to get the elements of the of the New Deal passed. It's not something that's ever that's ever taken root in this country now. And when I when I say this, obviously people get angry. They get angry online. 
I don't dislike Senator Sanders. Um, I think he's a breath of fresh air. Uh, I think in a season of political cowardice, particularly in the Republican Party, blow-dried, fake candidates, he's the real deal. I mean, he believes every word that comes out of his mouth. He's authentic. I get why people are responding to him, but I also culturally, you know, grew up in a place, grew up in a time in New Jersey, not too far from where you grew up in <laughs> Delaware, and just deeply ingrained in the culture in which I grew up was the concept is there's no such thing as free shit. You know, there's not, you know, somebody pays. And when you look at the disingenuousness of his proposals and costs and 50, 60 trillion dollars of, of new spending, the obliteration of Obamacare. And what I would say is, I've yet to meet a person, whether they're a Democrat, whether they're a Republican, whatever, who has private health insurance that wants to lose it and go into a government program. I don't think there's anybody. I don't think those people know anybody who wants to. So he carries forward into a presidential race and a general election contest a set of issues that are profoundly unpopular. I mean, the idea that a union member working for the Ford Motor Company or General Motors or Chrysler wants to lose their private insurance, a Teamster wants to lose it, is just insanity. And it will and it will lead, in my view, to Trump's reelection pretty decisively. Right. Well, your Twitter mentions are going to be interesting once this goes out. But I, uh, <laughs> let's talk about that general election. So in 2004, you played a critical role uh, in helping George W. Bush win re-election. You know, I was in the White House uh, in 11 and 12 when Barack Obama was seeking re-election. I'm sure uh, you studied like I did Clinton playbooks, Reagan playbooks. I think one of my great concerns about this election is Trump has time. That's always an advantage for an incumbent. You mentioned the money advantage, the data advantage. They're organizing on the ground, not just online. They're going to know these battleground states much better. They're already trying to define the democratic field. All of them is socialist, whether somebody emerges who actually is one or not. So I'd like your assessment of, A, how important is it is that this race begin, let's say, in April or May versus July? And secondly, as you look at what Trump's doing, um, what do you think he's doing well to leverage this time, and where is he missing opportunities? Well, I think that when you look at Trump, I think it's important to understand that he's an extremely consequential president. He has utterly redefined the nature of the office. Um, Permanently, do you think? Or is this going to, is that, that may be the question. Is this an aberration? I, or? I hope not. Mm -hmm. um, but when you look out on the horizon, um, it's going to take a, a leader of profound talent to, to bring this country back together. Trump has very deliberately, I think, stoked a cold civil war in this country. We have a monument uh, facing the Capitol uh, with the Washington Monument in the middle. You know, a, a president who at the end of civil war gives an inaugural address talking about with malice towards none and charity towards all. Um, and I think his comportment, his lack of probity and rectitude in the, in the Oval Office uh, has changed the the character of that office. And Kellyanne Conway was right about something, though I found it appalling at the at the beginning of the term. But it, it, she's right. And she said, well, presidential is how the president acts. And and three years later, you know, we've seen the serial degradations of the office. And 
I think, an evaporation uh, of any sense of dignity in that office, you know, that existed from presidents, let's say, in the modern age, from Roosevelt through Barack Obama. And so I, I think the economy in the eyes of the American people is strong. I think that he is uh, an effective communicator in a closely divided country. And he plays on fears and uses wedge issues more effectively than anybody we've ever seen in a, in a presidential contest with no restraint. There's no restraint whatsoever. He'll say anything, he'll do anything, and it's just going to be a bloodbath of an election. Um, and, and Democrats, I think, have to understand the nature of, of who it is that they're up against. So uh, you are uh, known, I think appropriately so, as a master communicator. <laughs> Trump, um, I think, you know, he understands the world we live in from an information standpoint better than anybody. It's just intuitive to him. He doesn't think about the 20-minute speech he's going to give or the interview he's going to give. You know, he's just direct. Um, doesn't worry about consistency. or So how do you deal with that? Like, so let's say we have a Democrat like Hillary who m maybe statistically, according to polls, wins the three debates, has a better convention, the things you're in your control. How do you execute the day-to-day -day of the campaign against this guy? Well, I, I th I've always said, you know, my advice would be if, you know, the first people that I would hire onto the campaign would be the Hollywood joke writers, mm -hmm. is that laughter and humor and belittlement are important weapons. I mean, the truth of the matter is he is a fool. Uh, he's a con man. Um, and laughter and ridicule ought to be directed at him. Also throws him and, off his game, right? And it, and it throws him off his game. You know, I think you saw Joe Biden in a very effective ad showing the world leaders mocking him. Uh, that's in the space. Um, I think Michael Bloomberg's in his head a little bit, but but that's what it's going to take to be able to engage with him. I mean, it's like a boxing match. You 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 can't stand in the middle of the ring and slug it out. You you have to get in there, jab, 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 provoke, get him off balance wait for him to take a swing, and hit him on the counterpunch. Um, that's how you have to engage Donald Trump. Um, and I think you also have to have a candidate who can frame this moment in time. What is at stake? Uh, where are we? Where do we go from here? Um, the country, and I, I, I think it, it, it breaks my heart to say this, uh, but the country is in a period of decline, obviously travel anywhere in the world, that's obvious. How is it that the country is going to succeed over these early decades of the 21st century and, and before long across the midway point, you know, for our kids and our grandkids? And you know, these, are, these are fundamental debates that require somebody who can talk, who can make an argument, um, that can bring people together and be attuned to, to the reality of the moment. Right. So I want to talk a little bit about what you're up to to try and prevent a, a second Donald Trump term. But you and I have talked a little bit about this through the years. I think it's intensified now. When do you think it's likely, if it is, that the two-party system disintegrates in America? I think that we're there. And what I think is that we'll see within the next two election cycles somebody – uh, who can step forward, who can really capture the imagination of the country 
and offer something different and, and better. Um, you know, we, we do have people of exceptional qualities who are allergic to the idea of getting involved in politics. I mean, when, when you look at American politics, and I, and I think the chief architect historically, you look back 100 years from now, who, who will have poisoned our civics is Newt Gingrich. He's the, he's the patient zero of all of this, a, a pernicious figure in our history. But I remember in the 1990s and 2000s, you would, you would hear people on, on cable news saying, if politics keeps going in this direction, you're not going to have any normal people, right, who want to run for office, who want to serve in office, um, who want to spend part of their, their career in public service. And, and I think we're about there. I mean, who in their right mind would submit themselves uh, to a primary process, to a confirmation process. I mean, how many good people, Democrats and Republicans, just you know, won't go ahead and do it? And then you look at the nature of the primaries and you look at a minority of the activists who are the most extreme people choosing the candidates, and then I think it provides a huge disincentive you know, and, and really a, a structural impediment you know, for moderate and I don't mean moderate by wishy-washy. I mean moderate in temperament, pragmatic, right? You sit there across the table from someone you disagree with, and you try to get what you can get. You try to get the best deal possible to move the country forward. Incrementalism isn't a bad idea, and it's just been eradicated. So I, I think, is it the Bill McRavens of the world, right? Is it someone out of our military? Is it a, is it a corporate leader? But but, but somebody, man or woman, whatever, who has the qualities that General Sherman ascribed to Abraham Lincoln as the qualities of greatness and goodness. Um, and, and I think you could see a person like that emerge and be received well by the American people. And accessing the ballot in all 50 states is, is not a nuclear physics <laughs> issue, right? It's a cookbook, right? Follow the recipe, follow the rules costs about $35 million to $45 million to be able to do it, and you have a third choice on the ballot. And my question then is, so, so if we begin to have more third choices on the ballot, I mean, do you think that ultimately becomes a, a new party emerges maybe on the hard right of the Republican Party, the hard left of the Democratic Party, so we get to more of a European style? Well, I, I, they, I think absolutely that's the, that's the trend line on it, right? I, I mean, when you look just demographically where the Republican Party is going, I mean, Trump will be long gone, but a all-white nativist party that's rooted in the old Confederacy is not a national party as we move into the third, fourth, and fifth decades of the, of the 21st century. Um, but those attitudes and those views have been enduring um, in American politics for a long time. And I think that technology has, uh, and the age that we live in, has, has surfaced it all, coagulated those people together from the fringes, um, and they are sizable enough um, on both the far right and the far left to, to have enough gravity uh, to be a significant shaping right. movement, if not a majority movement in American politics. And then you have you know, the broad middle of the country that doesn't look at someone who disagrees with them as an enemy, you know, that exists Most traditionally, of the country, right? Most 70, 75% uh, they... between 
exists between the, the 45 yard lines. You know, the 90% of us that, you know, agree on common sense gun reform, the 80% of us who agree on common sense immigration reform, um, those people are just worn down and, and exhausted. And it's important to understand this, you know, particularly as we talk about the election, there's only two ways to win a fight. Now, you bring an opponent to submission. I think Germany and Japan at the end of World War II, where you can break their will to fight. Think the uh, United States and the Vietnam War. And you, you look at that politically, um, you know, Trump has exhausted the country. I mean, part of living in a healthy democracy means the leader isn't constantly in your face, right? He's not a ubiquitous presence. You know, we don't live moment to moment by what the what the president is saying. But Trump's capacity to be constantly present, to exhaust the electorate, creates the conditions for not submission to Trumpism, but a give up, right? Just worn out, worn down by it. I'm just going to tune out and turn off politics. And there's never been a moment um, in our lifetimes that that requires more civic engagement than the one we're in right now. Yeah. No, I really believe he's come to view this as his country, not our country. So I want to talk about uh, you and some some other patriotic, either former or current Republicans, uh, John Weaver, Rick Wilson, folks like you who've who've won at the highest levels have started something called the Lincoln Project. You've talked about you're going to get involved in a presidential race. You've already run some ads um, in some U.S. Senate races. Talk about why you guys decided to start this. Uh, you know, you must have seen a gap out there. And what what do you hope to accomplish with it? Well, we uh, you know certainly on uh, television the Never Trump movement, uh, such as it was, um, in a conversation. I said, "Looks like we're down to about eight of us." Um, <laughs> Smaller you know, boat, that are, yeah. that are that are that are holding out. You know, it's where our next boat will be a canoe. Um, but um, the the reality is, is when you when you look at the 2018 midterm elections, what what we know is that there, there are millions of voters, independents, uh, who have performed as voters, as Republicans, and Republican voters who are appalled by this, uh, appalled by the conduct of the president, the corruption, the malfeasance and incompetence. And, and a lot of those voters pulled down levers for Democrats, and including me, um, you know, for the first time in, in 2018. And so what the goal of the Lincoln Project is, is to um, uh, create a movement. We've had about 150,000 people uh, sign up, um, raised a couple million dollars pretty early. And what it, what it will do is, is, is play a role communicating uh, to Republicans through the language and the iconography of one of the two great institutions politically in the country that we have, the Republican Party, to indict Trumpism and to, and to indict Trump um, and to try to persuade them uh, that in this moment in time, uh, as it has in the past, you know, the Democratic Party is called to be the sentinel of our institutions and our, and our democracy, and it will be easier or harder by orders of magnitude depending on who the nominee is. But, you know, hopefully, and we'd like to see a nominee that has the broadest possible appeal to make an argument in a very closely divided country uh, to get as many Republicans as we can uh, to do something that, you know, a couple of years ago, they wouldn't have thought they could ever do. And do you see yourself running digital and TV ads in the battleground states at some uh, weight 
as we get deeper into the election? I, I do. I, yeah. And I think it's a new organization. It's, um, it's uh, the leadership of it is coming together. But, but certainly, I, I, you know, that is the, you know, that's the goal of the organization is to be impactful in the election process by, by shaping the narrative, by communication of voters in all of those areas. Now, Mike Bloomberg has said that if he doesn't become the nominee, he's going to continue his spending and, and his organization on behalf of whoever wins. You clearly have views about who would be the stronger Democratic nominee versus some others, but are you going to stay on the field regardless of who emerges? That's definitely the plan. Right, right. Um, I would say this. It was a couple of months ago, I was at a dinner and um, you know, I was I was the only Republican in the room, and I got I got a question. I said, "Well, what would your advice be to the to the Democratic Party?" And um, and what I said was this: I said, "Imagine three Democratic candidates, and um, they they all at various times of the day walk by a big building site in Manhattan, big building, you know, eighty stories going up, hundreds of people working on it." And I said, "The first Democratic candidate walks by that building, and they they just don't see anybody." at all working on it. Those, those people are invisible. And those people would have been recognized as FDR, for example, as, as what he called the forgotten man. Second Democratic candidate uh, walks by the site and they see everybody on it, right? They, they see the tattoos and the smokers and they just say, thank God none of these people are out in East Hampton this weekend <laughs> um, or on the Upper East Side. These, are, these people are deplorables. And, and that's a, a Democratic Party of, of the elites, right, of, of Silicon Valley that isn't going to win a national election. The, the third candidate walks by that building site, and, and what they see are the backbone of the country. They, they see people who make things and create, and they see the dignity of labor. Uh, they see people doing tough, hard, dangerous jobs that they couldn't do themselves in a, in a million years whether it's doing the rigging, the welding, the, the electric work at 700 feet in the air. And, and that candidate, that Democrat, that's the Democrat that wins national elections in the United States. That Democrat belongs to the party that Harry Truman and FDR and John Kennedy, Bill Clinton and Barack Obama would, would recognize. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that it's going to be someone who's in that strain of Democrat uh, who is going to be successful and able to talk to the constituencies that are so disgusted by the wholesale corruption of the system that they actually think that Trump is the answer. And I think one of the things that people don't understand is this duality that exists now in American politics is that the biggest, most prolific liar that's ever served in the White House is viewed by about half the country is the most honest president we've ever had, because he is exactly and a better what president than Lincoln to be in the Republican a better Party. president than Abraham yeah. Lincoln. Think about that. So you, um, Rick Wilson, John Weaver, you are none of you are known as shrinking violets. You've also talked about um, you know the way Donald Trump communicates is just brute force, and so as you think about your work, and you've already put out some pretty tough ads in some Senate races, but. But, you know, you have a long history in, in communications, generally political communications specifically, but I, I do think the world's changed. So how do you think about that? Like uh, how important is virality? Um, how important is it emotion rather than logic? I mean, I'm really curious to see what you guys come up with because I think we could learn from it. Well, I, I think you need to communicate directly and simply 
words have meaning. Um, you should communicate in a way with intent and ferociousness consistent with the uh, with the moment in time. I, I think the stakes here are are very high. And I, I'm not prone to hysteria. I, I like to think I'm not prone to, to hyperbole. But the system that we have, right, that this is our inheritance, right? You know, there was a there was this moment in our family's tradition and you know, and I and I understand that, you know, we have some Americans who are the descendants of uh, slavery. Of bondage, but for our our history, our family, you know, I, I think about this moment a couple generations ago, you know, in in Germany and in, in Poland, uh, in Scotland, the the night before, you know, a, a great great grandfather in the morning, we will we'll go to America. There were there were no travel magazines, there was there was no television to look at it. Uh, but it was it was the power of an idea that lit the world, and and I think when we consider Trump and Trumpism, and, and we look at these last couple of years, this this whole system, um, and we've been honored both of us to be able to work in a White House. It's so much more fragile than I ever could have imagined, and it can be degraded so much more quickly than I than I ever thought possible. And so nobody here is talking about landing on Omaha Beach. That being said, I think the moment requires fierceness, directness, and an ability to frame an argument about why this is so terrible. Right. By the way, the current occupant of 1600 Pennsylvania probably thinks Omaha Beach is in Nebraska, but well, so- Or Kansas. Or Kansas. As the case may be. Um, so- I think folks listening to this this week, we have the clusterfuck in Iowa. Um, we see Trump's numbers inching up a little bit. He's going to be acquitted. Um, I think they were already panicked about the election and will be more so. Um, you know, my answer to that is control what you can control, which is effort. But I'd like to ask you, in your as you think about it, what are the stakes in this election that should motivate people? And what is the difference between one term of Trump versus two terms? And where may we find ourselves... Uh, in January of 25, if this guy gets eight years? Well, I think that right now he emerges as, and I and I understand, I said this yesterday, and, and, you know, I had a lot of pushback from the right talking about Lincoln suspended habeas corpus and FDR detained American citizens when I said Trump is the most powerful president now that we've ever seen. And, and I said that, and I believe that, because the concept of misconduct has been eradicated by the Republican uh, minority in the House and the majority in the Senate. We've seen an evisceration of the checks and balances in the in the system. We've seen for years now a systematic attack on all of the institutions of the country. I mean, if, if you were out there talking about the deep state, like the they all talk about five years ago, right? Someone would have handed you a whack job T-shirt, right? And and now this is accepted by half the country. And so, you know, a couple of years from now, what what you'll see is um, a retreat and decline of American values in the world, uh, where every issue is simply a transaction, brute force, zero sum. Uh, that makes the world a more dangerous place, um, a world where 
uh, leadership is not by the United States and, and the liberal values that uh, we've promoted in the post-World War II era is a far more dangerous world for our kids. Um, I think that you'll see a great cynicism in the country, a just acceptance that this is the best we can do. We'll make no progress on solving any of the issues that need to be solved, and, and we'll be more divided. And I think at the end, you know, we are we are all of us, right? We are Americans, right? We, we are all in it together at the end of the day. And when a country becomes as divided as we are, it's dangerous. And I think that um, the other thing is, is the architect substantially of the world we live in was Franklin Roosevelt. Uh, he conjured in his mind what the world would look like after the, the war was won. Uh, the UN Charter, the ideas uh, that underpin the U.S.-led liberal global order. And his great confidant uh, was Mackenzie King, the Canadian prime minister, and he would invite Mackenzie King to the White House fairly frequently during the war. And one of the things he said to Mackenzie King, he said that, that, that he had, his ambition was not to create a world order that would last forever because nothing does or can. But he said he wanted it to endure for as long as everybody who was alive on the day the war was won was still alive. And, and by 2025, we're, we're getting there to the end of his vision. And, and I think you can start to see the makings of a new world and a hinge in history. Roosevelt architected it and Harry Truman built it. And then it was maintenanced by presidents from Eisenhower through Barack Obama. And, and what it led to was a period in history of relative peace, uh, though not free from war, a couple billion people being uplifted from abject poverty uh, in the shortest span of history and in all of human history. And you can start to see the contours of what comes next in a world where the American president turns his back on all those values and fetishizes autocrats like Putin and Erdogan. And certainly it's the case that the season, the spring of freedom, of, of liberal democracy, uh, its high watermark is, is behind us now. And we, we should all be cognizant and have a better sense of imagination for the capacity of humanity to create great tragedies as we move beyond this period of human history where there will be human beings who survived the death camps in Europe and stormed the beaches in, in Normandy and, and built a better society and a better world out of the greatest tragedy that humanity's ever known. Well, Steve, uh, listening to you, I think it's hard to argue that this election isn't more important than, than even 1864, 1940. And I think for those of you listening, um, those are the stakes. And, and it's going to be incumbent on every single person who wants to see Donald Trump be a one-term president, do everything they can. Uh, Steve, it's been great to be with you. You know, it's interesting. Back in 08, we were adversaries. I think I talked to you a couple times on the phone and never met mm -hmm. you. We were asked to go back to University of Delaware, where we both went to college, and speak in an event together. And we decided to go get a beer afterwards at a, 
our old haunted deer park, which amazingly was still open. Yes. And I remember, you know, I don't know if you were, I was a little uneasy, like didn't really know you. We had just tried to beat each other's brains in and, and, and getting to know you that night in the subsequent 10 years has been a real pleasure. And, and I just can't thank you enough for being on the battlefield. I know how hard it is for you uh, to take the stand you've taken, but uh, doing all you can to try and deny this guy a second term, uh, I couldn't admire it anymore. Well, I appreciate it. You're a good friend. And I, and I will always remember that night because it led for both of us to completing some unfinished business. Yes. Most people won't know that you and I shared something else in common, which was we were both three credits short of our college degrees, the same math class. And that was the night the president of the university looked at us both and he said, God, he said, you guys are killing us. He said, you got to finish your degrees. And we both did. You did it first. God, it was we, hard. We, t- we took the math class. I had I, a couple others to take. And I remember being like, the presidential campaign was easy compared to this. But yeah. Math class was hard. We got it. We got it done. All right, man. Good to be with you, brother. Good to be with you.